Well, hello, and um, you're in for a treat now because I am talking to Martin Ford, who's a futurist and the author of four books. Rise of the Robots was a bestseller, uh, won the Financial Times McKinsey Book of the Year Award in 2015. Uh, and among others, he's now got a new book out, The Rule of the Robots, and um, I've read it and I can recommend it to you. So we're going to be talking about how artificial intelligence will transform everything, which is the subtitle of the book. My name is Diane Coyle. I'm Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge and have uh, a lot of books too. Uh, latest is Cogs and Monsters out this month, and I co-direct the annual Festival of Economics in Bristol. Uh, but that's enough introduction. Let's get on to the discussion and this fascinating subject. And I wanted to start, Martin, by asking you about something you say in the opening chapter. The enormous benefits from leveraging AI will be distributed widely. And then the rest of the book gives many counterexamples or possible risks attending AI and its deployment. But I wonder if you can just paint a picture for us of what you think the benefits are and, and why you think they are going to uh, change everything and benefit all of us. Well, I think that at its core, artificial intelligence is going to amplify and augment our intellect, our intelligence. And if you think about it, Everything that, everything that human beings have ever created is really the product of our intelligence. So this is going to be the most consequential tool that we have. Um, and I think that we'll see the, the benefits of that across the board, certainly in scientific research. Um, we've already seen artificial intelligence used to discover new drugs, for example. Um, and there, there are a number of companies that are focused on that. So we can expect a lot more of that. Uh, there in the UK, uh, DeepMind had a breakthrough just uh, a short time ago in protein folding, right? Where they use artificial intelligence to understand the three-dimensional structure of protein molecules. And this is something that really culminated a 50-year quest in, in science. You know, people devoted their entire career to trying to solve this problem and they were able to solve it within a year or two. And it's gonna have huge implications for medicine, biochemistry, um, for those types of areas. Um, we face enormous challenges um, in terms of our need to innovate, right? We are gonna to have to come up with problems to address climate change, both, both new forms of energy production and so forth to mitigate carbon emissions, as well as ways to adapt it. And that's gonna require innovation across the board. So artificial intelligence will be, I think the most critical tool we have in our toolbox over the next couple of decades to help us accomplish that. Um, and it's gonna bring many other benefits. It will make businesses more efficient, products and services cheaper, which is to say that, that we, it will help us to address poverty, right? It will help us to give people the things, both material and, and intangible that they need to thrive through the leveraging this technology. So it's definitely not something that um, we can afford not to deploy, but it does also have another side to it. And it's gonna bring some real risks that are coupled with it. And I think what we're gonna have to do is move forward aggressively in deploying the technology, but at the same time, be very much aware of the dangers that come coupled with it. So there are a couple of things you just said that I'd, I'd like to follow up on. And one is about the potential for this to um, increase productivity and um, you know, allow companies to make more products and services that they can sell to people. And you write in the book about the productivity slowdown. So there's no sign as yet of any of these discoveries starting to affect productivity and, and economic prosperity. Well, there there was a, a product a productivity surge earlier in in you know the late 1990s and 2000s that was resulted to 
probably the earlier computer revolution, right? But it's true that we haven't yet seen a big boost in productivity as a result of artificial intelligence. And the most common um, reason put forward for that is simply that there's a lag. You know, it takes time for businesses to assimilate new technologies, figure out how to use them and really use them in, in, in ways that, that really move the bottom line. So that's part of what's going on. And that's, we saw that with electricity, you know, when electricity was first introduced, it took actually decades before companies really understood how to use it and how, you know, it really had a big impact. Um, the other thing that, that I mentioned in the book that I think is important there is that when we talk about productivity, the way the economists look at it is they always say, well, productivity is a ratio in which the, the numerator is the amount of things that we produce, basically what we produce, and the denominator is the hours worked, right? And so if more artificial intelligence and robots come online, then there should be less labor, and so we should see a big jump in productivity. But the reality is that that numerator, the thing at the top, the production, you know, the, the amount of output is, is also impacted by artificial intelligence, because if people's incomes are, are um, if they decline as the result of robots and AI because they lose jobs or because their wages are lowered then they have, they're able to demand less, right? They're able to purchase fewer products and services. So that could actually act to depress productivity. So it's a very complicated story. Well, I suppose that takes me on to um, my next question to touch on with you. And that's that one of the things people hear about AI in the news is about um, automation eating all the jobs. The robots are going to take all your jobs. And there've even been people suggesting a, a tax on the use of robots in factories to, to mitigate that. And um, so that doesn't sound like a very positive benefit. I suppose on the one hand, it could increase productivity as you are hinting it might. But on the other hand, that's a very difficult transmission, uh, transition for society to make. How, how should we navigate through that? Well, I think, we, you know, it's going to happen um, and it will happen, you know, in, in different areas at different rates is what I would say. Like right now in, in the UK, you've got a labor shortage, right? Um, in part as a result of the pandemic and in part as a result of uh, Brexit. But, you know, a lot of the jobs where those shortages are really concentrated are very, very difficult to automate. So you're not going to see... Uh, robots that can you know, drive trucks or lorries any, anytime soon, right? Um, this is a technology that's still far out in the future and yet you've got a critical shortage of these people. And there are many other areas like white collar jobs, uh, more routine jobs in warehouses and so forth, where I think you definitely are gonna see a big impact uh, in the relatively near future of automation. So it, was, it will impact some job areas faster than others. Um, Doing that will increase productivity, it will make operations more efficient, it will make the products and services being produced cheaper. So that's a good thing. Um, and it's also inevitable. Uh, you know, a country like the UK can't say we're not going to do this because then you, you would become, you know, uncompetitive with other countries, right, in particular China. So it's, it's an, inevitable, an inevitable process. I think what we have to do is find ways socially and economically to adapt to that. And that's, for example, why I talk about the possibility of having a universal basic income at some point or another approach along those lines. Well, that's been a very uh, popular suggestion for a while and it, it does crop up every time there is a wave of automation. So in the 1960s, the 1990s, there were, um, there's a resurgence of interest in, in a universal basic income. I must say to me, it seems like the ultimate Silicon Valley solution. 
there's a problem caused by AI, um, if this is what happens, that, that automates away a lot of routine jobs. And, and therefore, you compensate the individuals through taxing everybody to make sure they have a minimum income. But it doesn't seem to address any of the system issues to me. It doesn't give you a good public transport network or, or school system. And it doesn't really address the issues about expanding the economy to make sure that there are jobs for people who are displaced from um, uh, the, whatever's being automated. And so I, I'm, not a, I'm not, a, not a fan of UBI. Is that the only, the only game in town or are there any other options for addressing this problem? Well, there are certainly other proposals. I mean, you, you hear the proposal of having the government guarantee jobs, right? So that any, you know, the employer of last resort. The problem with that is that it would be an enormous bureaucracy, right? Um, you would be employing people in a lot of jobs that probably aren't very productive. Um, what would you do with people that didn't do their jobs or didn't show up or, or had other issues that, you know, it'd be, it would be a mess, I think. And it would cost a lot more money probably than simply giving people at least a minimal amount of income through a UBI. Um, I mean, there are various approaches similar to UBI. There's a negative income tax, a guaranteed minimum income, but the basic idea is to give people at least a minimal income so that they can survive and also participate in the economy, right? So that they can go out and buy things, which is critically important. As I said before, we need demand for products and services if we want to have a growing economy. So the UBI addresses one issue, the, the income distribution issue is what, what you're targeting with that. It's definitely not a panacea that's going to solve all the problems in society, but I mean, I think it's a, a definite, a good beginning. Um, one other idea I've proposed that we could build some level of incentives into a UBI. So for example, if people stay in school and study, maybe they should be paid a little bit more than the person who just stays at home and, and watches television um, so that we can continue to keep people engaged and, and attempting to become more productive, attempting to, to transition into this new world. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not an easy set of choices that we're gonna face in the future, but I think that we, we can do things that keep society running, you know, in a productive way. One of the things that people have often talked about is upskilling, and um, you've got a very interesting section talking about the way you would expect the technology itself to evolve so that we don't all need to become experts in um, AI and machine learning, but it'll become somewhat uh, more, um, well, I suppose automated is the word, or, or, or more standardized so that more of us will be able to do the jobs anyway. Can right. I mean, it, definitely the tools are getting much better in terms of, you know, actually working with artificial intelligence. But again, that means that it will, in a sense, be accessible to far more people, which is good. But it also means that some people who are very skilled in particular areas and have devoted a lot of training there may, may have less of a market. So, for example, you're already seeing artificial intelligence deployed to do basic computer programming. So, you know, if you if you talk to people, what they'll often say is that learning, you know, teaching all the children to, to write computer programs is supposed to be the panacea, right, to this, the, the solution. And in fact, that's not going to be the case because even, even that kind of activity can also be automated. So it will be democratized and, and the technology will be more accessible to everyone, but that in itself won't necessarily guarantee that everyone's going to have a job. Um, I want to uh, pick up on another couple of uh, I suppose the downsides, and, and then we'll get back to all the benefits of AI uh, towards the end of our conversation. 
Um, but the other, one of the others is the vast amounts of energy that are being used, the, that it takes a lot of computational power to build and use machine learning systems, and those are very energy intensive. Is, is that um, kind of eating of energy with all the carbon emissions that comes along with that, is that bound to continue or is there something that's happening in the industry that will make, a, make it less of a problem right. I mean, advances? That's becoming more of an issue, um, not, not just because of the carbon emissions, but also because it's incredibly expensive for these companies to keep scaling up in that way. What we have seen over the first, the last uh, decade or so is that you know there, there is this one particularly consequential technology called deep learning, which is really the driving force between behind all of the recent progress that we've seen in artificial intelligence. And the approach that has been taken is just to build bigger and bigger systems to scale it up. And as you say, that uses more energy and it, and it you know, accesses more data and so forth and gives better results. So there is a lot of research going into different approaches um, that might be more energy efficient. Um, there's also development in new kinds of hardware. Um, for example, there's something called neuromorphic computing, which actually um, builds hardware that actually instantiate artificial neurons. So it actually is computer hardware that it is designed in a way that is a bit more similar to our brains. And that's actually a lot more energy efficient. And that's something that in the next few years, you will probably see being, having an impact. So definitely people are focused on, on that issue. And um, another area is um, the use of data, data bias, and a couple of issues I'd like to hear you talk about there. I mean, one is that many of the applications of AI that we hear about are actually these quite scary um, facial recognition, Chinese social credit type of stories. How worried should we be about that, about um, the use of AI in ways that does embed biases or uh, inaccuracies and, and what the consequences of that might be? Right. I mean, it's definitely an issue everywhere and it's something that people are going to need to be aware of because I think different countries will approach this in different ways and have different conversations and make different trade-offs. But certainly bias in artificial intelligence is a very real issue that's really come to the forefront. We've seen algorithms used in very high-stakes scenarios, for example, by uh, the criminal justice system in the United States deciding whether people should be released from jail. Uh, questions like this, they really have a big impact on your life. Um, screening resumes, you know, to decide if you should get an interview, um, making decisions on loans for homes and cars and things like this. And there have been cases where these, these algorithms have been shown to be biased by race and also by gender. So there are many, many people working on this. I mean, the companies, you know, the large tech companies that are developing these systems are very much aware of it. There are teams of people focused on, it's not necessarily always easy to fix because um, you know, it can be more subtle than, than you might expect, but definitely it's a huge um, um, undertaking and, and a focus to, to resolve that. I think that will happen. And I think that in the long run, it will actually be a hopeful note because you know, it's certainly much easier to fix any potential bias in an algorithm than it is in a human being, right? I mean, so I think in the long run, um, the use of artificial intelligence could lead to a fairer society with less bias and it could act as kind of a check, you know, something that is there always watching for evidence of, of, of these kinds of biases. So I, I'm actually quite hopeful about that. That's interesting uh, because I, 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 I was wondering whether it was actually very easy to solve the data bias problem because the data is um, a product of 
the biased society in which we live and, and the classifications that go into the data and that the systems are trained on is really hard to unpick. Um, so I guess my question about that would be, is it really easy for um, to monitor and understand what biases are being replicated by the algorithms? Right. It, it's not easy. I mean, the big tech companies like Google have actually developed um, tools specifically for doing that, you know, AI fairness tools. In other words, very sophisticated software that they're using specifically to try to, to um, filter out bias where it occurs. Because you're right, a lot of the bias comes because it is instantiated in data, right? It, if data is generated by people doing things, and if they are biased in some way as they do these things, then that bias will be encapsulated in the data um, and it will be picked up by machine learning algorithms. So then you need additional software, additional techniques to, to um, detect that in effect and, and try to um, correct for it. So that, that's why it does take a lot of research in order to address these issues. But still, I think there's a better chance of fixing it in the data or in the algorithms than, than trying to go back and change all the human beings that are creating all the, the data in the first place, right? So I yeah. still think human that, beings, there's a hopeful story there. Human beings are certainly hard to change. Uh, the other data question that um, I'm interested in because I was involved in uh, an inquiry into competition in digital markets here in the UK chaired by Jason Berman is, is the question of access to data because the big tech companies um, have clearly accumulated a lot of data about us and that gives them an advantage, a competitive advantage that's very hard for anybody else to uh, get in, into the market. Is that um, something that would worry you? Do you worry about the power of the big tech companies in this field? Well, yes. I mean, given given events over just the last few years, I think everyone should should worry about that. I mean, not just specifically with regard to artificial intelligence, but in terms of the influence of social media, uh, the situation with Facebook and the election in 2016 and all of that. Um, Definitely, it's something to worry about, um, and there needs to be more regulation. Um, speaking of AI specifically, yes, it is true that those big companies have enormous amounts of data, and data is really the most important input to artificial intelligence, right? It's the thing that makes AI successful. But on the other hand, artificial intelligence is also clearly being democratized. It's, it's available through many of these same companies through their cloud computing um, platforms. And companies across the board are leveraging that technology. So there are many kinds of data across the whole economy that are not controlled by Google or Facebook. Um, think of healthcare data, right? Which is controlled by healthcare systems or health insurance uh, companies or hospitals. Um, financial data is controlled by banks and so forth. And, and many companies and other industries control all kinds of operational data. And they'll be able to leverage this technology of artificial intelligence to extract value from that data and to become more efficient. So I think it's going to be relatively distributed. It is true that anyone that controls lots of data will be able to use artificial intelligence to create lots of value based on that data. But it won't just be a few companies. It will be, it will be kind of verticalized across different industries. The health data is an interesting example here because the government's had to pause a proposal to give access to NHS data to private sector companies. It's already used widely by researchers in the UK, and it's obviously a fantastic health database. I, I, I think the reaction was because people um, 
aren't confident that the benefits from anything that's created using that data will, will flow back to British citizens and, and users of the NHS. So I think it's a question about, to take us right back to where we started, how do we ensure that people do benefit from all these amazing discoveries that are possible? And um, that if somebody can use our patient data to create some fantastic new medical intervention, um, that we can afford it and they're not going to charge us thousands of dollars for it. Right, those are important conversations. Um, and I think there definitely is a place for regulation, but I do think we, we don't want to be too restrictive. You know, it is true that the innovation is largely going to occur in the private sector. Um, governments like, you know, in the NHS control enormous amounts of data. Um, so there is a huge opportunity there. And, and that conversation and, and collaboration will have to take place between private entities and, and governments to ensure that it's used in an ethical way and that it does produce results that are accessible. But, you know, the problem is that it's a very competitive situation. If you look at China, for example, they don't have as many restrictions. So it's a lot easier for Chinese companies, for example, to access this kind of data. Um, and if we're not careful, they're going to have a real advantage in developing these technologies. So we want to remain competitive, but at the same time, um, you know, keeping it, these situations under control. That's why I think it's really important for people to have an understanding of artificial intelligence and how it's evolving and its implications so that they can be part of these discussions. Um, I promised we'd get back to the benefits and you've got this section at the end where you talk about we could end up in Star Trek world where all is peace and harmony and people do things for the right purposes, or we could end up in, in the matrix. So um, I think I'd like you to paint a picture of Star Trek world and what are the things that you're most excited about and what kind of society might you see as a result of these technologies over, let's say the next five or 10 years? Right, so Star Trek to me is kind of a vision of a post-scarcity world, a world where a lot of the material things that people use or need um, are, are much more affordable, much more available. It's a world where people don't do boring jobs that they dislike. They're not locked into drudgery in doing something that they, they hate uh, just in order to survive. You know, we've, we've taken things beyond that and produce this material abundance. And so I can imagine artificial intelligence being one of the major tools that eventually enables that, you know, to come to, come to pass. And it might, it would probably require something like a universal basic income, right? People, if, if we still have a, a market economy at that point, people would need an income from somewhere. And if they weren't working um, or, or some people weren't working, then they would need an income. So that's sort of the vision for a very positive but it's an inclusive vision where, where people are not disenfranchised. People don't lose their dignity. People don't, be, don't despair because they feel they're not doing something useful. We need to solve those problems as well, right? So that people find meaningful things to do, even if in fact, they're not working a traditional job. So that's the Star Trek vision. The, the other vision I put forward in contrast to that, I called the matrix and, uh, you know, if you think of the Matrix movie, you've got all this virtual reality, people are living in this artificial environment. And I, I see that possibility going forward where the real world becomes so unequal that only a relatively few people are really thriving in the real world. And at the same time, these technologies create fantasy environments where there's virtual reality itself um, in com combination with artificial intelligence. 
maybe it's new types of drugs that people can escape to. And, and so a lot of people simply, in essence, check out from the real world and, and enter these fantasy environments or, or get involved with other things because they begin to lose hope that, that the real world offers much of a future for them in terms of um, the ability to, to really get ahead to do better. And so I, you know, those are the two general paths that I see, and I want to make sure that we remain focused on the trajectory that is going to get to us to a world that looks more like Star Trek. Even if uh, Zoom is not very much like the holodeck and on the Starship Enterprise. Um, and if I press you uh, to choose which one of those you think is most likely to happen, which would you, which would you say? Well, I think that the default, if we just do nothing and allow these um, technologies to just unfold without thinking about the social and economic consequences, without having policies like, for example, a basic income someday to address these issues, then I think the default is that we become a much more unequal society. I think that a lot of people are left behind. Um, they become worse off. Um, while you know, a relatively small number of people at the top of the income distribution tend to do better and better. And that, so that becomes to look more like that matrix scenario. And that's the genuine fear that I have is that we really need to be aware of this technology and what it means for the future and, and take active steps to, to make sure that it's inclusive, right? That it, that it benefits everyone, that everyone um, comes to feel that artificial intelligence is a very positive force that has made their lives better. I think the first step for anybody who wants to understand it better is to read uh, the, your new book, Martin, Martin Ford's Rule of the Robots, which is a great read and a great overview about what artificial intelligence has the potential to do for good and for bad. So, Martin, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Really thank you. It. I really appreciate it.